It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to Forward Progress. We are live for the Hammer Betting Network. I'm George Sulfides, and we have a great show lined up today, including the Jets' O-line issues, Lamar Jackson having more input into this year's offense, and are the Bills still the Chiefs' biggest threat? Before we get into that, I want to remind everybody about our sponsor, Pinnacle, who is the world's sharpest sportsbook available to bettors in Ontario. Find out what professional bettors have known for decades Everyday competitive odds, bet smart, bet pinnacle, must be 19 plus in Ontario. Please play responsibly. Also want to remind you that every Wednesday we'll be live two from now until the season starts. Do yourself a favor, set notifications. You don't want to miss this content every week. Also, we're doing a weekly Q&A show. So if you have any betting related questions, ask us in the comments, tweet us or email us at forwardprogress at thehammer.bet. Let me bring in my panelists here to discuss all the issues of the day. I've got to my uh, right here, i got Fabian Zuma, and to his right, I've got Eric Eager. Guys, thanks for joining me. I want to hey. talk about um, Baltimore to, to start off because there are there is some news of the day. Um, but before we get into that, there was an article yesterday that Lamar Jackson has more input now into this offense. He's been telling Todd Monk in some plays that he wants in. Eric, are, uh, is this an indictment that Greg Roman wasn't doing that? Or is this just simply Todd Monken wants Lamar to have real say in this offense? Well, I think with any coaching change, you almost always have the situation where the, the next coach is almost the exact opposite of the coach before him, right? So you have like the Hardo, you have... You know, the I want to, you know, have the player influence everything. So I think going the opposite direction here, also Lamar Jackson, you know, just went from being a guy who wasn't signed by anybody that was given a lower tag and no one wanted him uh, for that number, you know, all the way now to a guy who's making over 50 million a year. He has some leverage to be able to do this stuff within the Baltimore Ravens offense and within the Baltimore Ravens scheme. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it makes some sense for him to be able to do this because you know, with all of Lamar Jackson's abilities, he has some flaws, but the Ravens, you know, are committed to him moving forward. And this is one way to sort of demonstrate that commitment. Yeah. I reminds me of when Brian Dable arrived in New York and he figured out quickly what Daniel Jones is good at and what he's bad at. And he eliminated the bad and dialed up more of the good. Mike McDaniel did the same with Tua Tagovailoa. Um, Zuma, how do you expect uh, Todd Monken with Lamar's input is going to change this offense? I think we will see like a 180 in this offense. This will likely be more of a pass-first offense, like spread around. Todd Morgan has worked with uh, different offenses, and I've read the uh, the not football so that's the FTN Almanac and the the Ravens chapter by Derek Klassen. I highly recommend. Uh, was a phenomenal read on the evolution of the Todd Morgan offense, and I think what we can expect is really a much bigger emphasis on uh, the, the passing game, more stuff like Todd Morgan finding out matchup advantages, using motion, motion to his advantage. And then I think they will also try to incorporate Lamar uh, Jackson's rushing ability uh, the best that they can. So 
Um, I just think uh, gun are the days of the uh, Greg Roman uh, run first and then like uh, three isolated routes on, on third down stuff like this. I just think that um, we, we will see a much better passing game, passing attack. Um, he will try to really attack the, the whole defense as vertically and horizontally as possible. And um, I'm pretty sure that Lamar Jackson will be able to handle all of that. The thing I'd like to see uh, them really improve on is like their red zone efficiency, because when I think of the Ravens, like they had the sixth fewest punts per drive, fourth fewest three and outs per drive, but they had the third worst touchdown to field goal ratio down there with like teams like the Jets, Texans and Colts. Their third worst in converting red zone trips into touchdowns, less than 46 percent of the time they got six points when getting into the red zone, like their 25th and fourth down conversions. A lot of this to me is poor scheme. And it's inexcusable when you have a, a quarterback as dynamic as Lamar Jackson and a tight end as good as Mark Andrews for you to be near the bottom in all these metrics. Um, Eric, do you believe that is um, a bit of a noisy stat where where it varies from year to year? Or do you think that is scheme dependent? Well, I think it varies year to year because teams are often oscillating between solving last year's problems and this year's ones, right? So, you know, you have short yardage issues one year, you don't have them the next, you have red zone issues one year. You don't have them next, but it is it is having to do with that. It's also personnel. And the one thing that's that's really, you know, I, I think uh, reassuring about the Ravens this year is not only do they bring in Odell Beckham Jr., who, you know, could go either way. I don't I don't have huge expectations for him. The market doesn't have huge expectations for him, but he can get open in the red zone. And we we've already seen Zay Flowers, their first round pick. Um, you know, the, the word I'm getting out of that camp is that he's legit. And when you think about historically you know, everybody thinks the red zone wide receivers is guys that can go up and get a fade and go up and body people. But when you look at some of the truly successful offenses over the past 20 years, it's like Antonio Brown, it's Tyreek Hill, it's guys who can create separation in small spaces. And Zay Flowers can absolutely do that. And, and so I, I think that that's, you know, that's going to help them a lot. The, the one part that you we do have to worry about with the Ravens is Lamar's like short area accuracy is not as good. Like when you look at him as a passer, He's a, a good passer, very good passer, but his short area accuracy is one of his weaknesses as a thrower at times. And so that, that can be, you know, if he's inaccurate that way, um, you know, it can hurt them in the red zone. The other part is it's funny that the two best tight ends in all of football, Mark Andrews and, Ty, and Travis Kelsey, are not Gronk-like in that they're not, you're not throwing them covered passes in the red zone. They're a get open guys. And so, it, it, you know, to that, to that extent, it's probably with a new scheme going to be better for them. The, the one concern I have about their O-line is um, it, it all depends on Ronnie Stanley's health, I think, because he's played a thousand snaps in the last three years combined. And if he's not healthy, um, all of a sudden the left guard's a new player. Uh, the the, the O-line as a whole doesn't feel like a dominant unit. But the area I actually want to focus in on is the defense because I already wrote down uh, my info last night about how I have question marks after Marlon Humphrey at corner. I think Rocky is seen uh, as a number two is, you know, that's putting a lot on his plate. And then their number three and four corners are likely going to be guys like Jalen Armour Davis, fourth round picks that didn't show much of anything last year. And then we get the news that Marlon Humphrey might miss a month, a month and a half um, because due to foot surgery, um, Suma, is that uh, widely concerning for you that that this secondary uh, maybe not as good as it should be? Sorry, I, I was muted. Um, yes, I think 
they might have one of the best safety duos in the league. But if Marlon Humphrey loses time, uh, we are looking at if they are all healthy, like uh, Rock Yassin, Jalen Amor Davis, Brent Stevens might get some uh, slot uh, nickel dime looks. So that might get ugly. And if you combine that with uh, a very weak or thin edge rush, I mean, they are basically banking on David Ojabo to get anything out of that edge group. I mean, <laughs> they could be in for some. Uh, rough games where their offense is almost forced to score many points because of their defense. I mean, yes, um, Kyle Hamilton and Marcus Williams, really good safety do, but they can only cover so much ground. And if, if you are really trotting out like a bottom five cornerback group, that will not get the work done. Uh, Eric, when you think of their pass rush, and it's going to be a combination of like David Ojabo, Odafe Owe, Tyus Bowser, do you think this is a good enough pass rush? And do you think there's some consideration to maybe have Patrick Queen coming off the edge using his athleticism, given how good Roquan Smith is as a linebacker and being able to pick up more of the slack in, in true linebacking duties? Yeah, the the Patrick Queen being a better kind of Devin White blitzer guy has been the truth for almost his entire career. When, when, once they got Roquan in, they've been able to do that. Um, the Ravens have forever done a good job with edge player because they've never been a team that has picked high, uh, you know, at, since Terrell sucks. And they've been able to sort of piece it together with guys like, um, you know, uh, Matthew Judon and Zadarius Smith. And like they've, they've done a good job of coaching these guys up to be competent edge rushers. Tyus Bowser was a guy who had good efficiency numbers before they gave him a modest contract. Um, you get worried, though, because we really haven't seen Ojabo do it at the pros. Adapa away has been up and down. Um, so I, I think you are going to see more blitzing. I think you are going to see more man coverage. But then this gets back to, you know, early in Lamar Jackson's tenure, they were spending 60, 65 percent of their cap on defense. They can't anymore now that he makes what he makes. And so that secondary is going to be weaker. And you look at the AFC North, they might luck out on Cincinnati early. But you look at the AFC North, and it's you know Chase Higgins uh, and and uh, and Tyler Boyd in Cincinnati. It's Pickens. It's Deontay Johnson in in, uh, in Pittsburgh, and then the Cleveland passing game with Amari Cooper, Elijah Moore, David and Joku. Like this is not this used to be a division where there weren't that many good passing games, and now and Baltimore ate up, ate those teams up, and now you know we've seen over the past few years that they've gotten eaten up, even when Marlon Humphrey plays let alone Marlon Humphrey being out. And, and again, it just puts stressors everywhere. Do you put Kyle Hamilton at, at in the nickel and then have, but Chark Clark's gone, right? So how do you, you know, how do you piece together a secondary that is, is already like minus one player, but they're probably zero players uh, injured away from being great. And, and they're already there. Yeah. I, I really do think you're going to see a lot more Kyle Hamilton uh, playing nickel and, hoping that Geno Stone can fill the role at safety when he does. Let's look at the Baltimore Ravens win total, and let's take a look at what sides you might be leaning on. It's at nine and a half uh, right now, um, highly juiced to the over. When you start to think of the win total, Suma, um, which ways do you lean for Baltimore? At this current price, I would not lean either way because at nine and a half minus 183, we are probably – uh, looking at a true win total of like 10.3-ish. 10, 10 so I think that's a very good number because there's still some uncertainty, like a, a new offense, new scheme. Uh, Rashad Bateman and Otto Beckham got to prove that they can stay healthy. And we are looking at a defense, like we have mentioned, that has a very thin edge rush and might be 
um, without their best corner, who is also by far the best cornerback in that group uh, for the early part of the season. So I think uh, around 10 wins is probably completely right right now. Yeah, I, I make them 10.1 wins for the season. And if it got to a flat 10, I'd have a decision to make there. Eric, do you uh, see both sides and say there's a bet to be made here? If not, where would you lean, though? Yeah, I make the number 9.6. So I guess right now I'd lean under a little bit. Um, I I make, but the thing that would get me off of them would be the fact that you look at their schedule and per game, it's about a half a point easier than the average schedule on neutral field. So you look like, you look at um, the AFC as a whole and it's just hard to make an over case for a lot of these teams. But if you look at the South and you look at the North, there are easier schedules than the rest of the AFC there. And so, to me, that, that's why people are betting. And people had bet this number up last year to nine and a half minus whatever it was. It was like one, you know, 151, you know, all the way to 170, if I remember correctly, last year. And, you know, they're a team that because of how good they are on special teams and how good they are, um, you know, well coached and things like that, it's hard for me to envision them going all that far under nine uh, or nine and a half. So uh, even though my numbers say 9.6, it's kind of right on that number. The juice would, would obviously make me lean towards under. I'm not I'm not going to make a play there. All right, let's put a pin in the Baltimore discussion and talk about the Buffalo Bills. Uh, Zuma, we'll start with you. The markets are down on Buffalo. Well, comparatively speaking to last year where they were the favorite. Are they still the biggest threat to the Chiefs? If not, who is? To me, they are. I have them ranked um, slightly uh, behind the Chiefs. They are my number two team in the AFC. I just think that... Um, when I look at this team, like last year, they were like decimated with injuries on defense. And now aside of uh, Von Miller, who might join them like in week four, or week five, when he's completely healthy, we are really looking at a very good defense from, from a personal standpoint. They have depth at their defensive line. Uh, Matt Milano is still there uh, to be their um, um number one linebacker. And then when you look at this at secondary, John Poyer, Mika Hyde missed a bunch of games last year. Tredavious White came off the ACL. He joined them at like, I don't know, week 12 or something, was was by far not uh, around 100%. Um, Kair Elam is entering year two. Tredavious White might be close to 100% now. So really looking at a defense that was decent last year and is now getting healthy. And I also think that um, Sean McDermott calling plays I mean, Leslie Fraser, I think he's a very good coach, but the issue with Buffalo was that as soon as they faced a clever OC or, or a good quarterback, they at times got basically diced up, like giving, giving up all those easy completions. I think they, they had one of the highest um, open uh, target rates in the league last year. And I think that Sean McDermott wanted some change there, and I don't think this will be a downgrade, at least in my books. And then on offense, I mean, Josh Allen, despite that elbow injury, overall was very, very good last year. And he played with a receiving group that had Stefan Diggs. And then um, what's not getting mentioned too often, in my opinion, is that Gabriel Davis had a high ankle sprain before week two. He set out one game, and then he was playing through that ankle sprain where other wide receivers might sit out five, uh, five, uh, four to five uh, weeks. And he was playing through that. And I think that was also obvious on the field. And now uh, Stefan Diggs, uh, Gabriel Davis is healthy. They got Dol um, 
uh, Dalton Kincaid as their probably number two tight end to start the season. We will see more 12 personnel. I think there's no reason, in my opinion, to anticipate this team being worse than last year. And I would uh, actually argue that they are better on defense because they will enter the season healthy and the offense will be pretty damn good again. Uh, Eric, last year you founded the Restore the More, uh, Restore the Roar movement, and it seems like this year you are founding the Don't Forget About the Bills movement. Uh, what are you seeing in Buffalo that maybe people are missing? Well, I just think all the stuff that Suma just said is all correct, and it was all correct about this team for the most part for the last two years. In the last two years, this team was fundamentally the best team in the NFL. Um, if you look at, you know, kind of add everything up, you know, they were power rated as the best team going into the, into the season. Von Miller gets hurt. They got dinged a little bit. But even going into the postseason, after you adjust for home field and everything, they were power rated better than the Chiefs in the market. And they lose one game as a six-point underdog at home to the Bengals. And we're all like, oh, this team can't get over the hump. And it's like there's, there's anecdote after anecdote after anecdote in the NFL history. I mean, the Colts, they lost twice to New England, then got beat at home by Pittsburgh. Everybody wrote them off. Then they win the Super Bowl and everybody's like, oh, they can't win the big one. And I feel like Buffalo at market prices is, is just a value to me right now because everybody's writing them off, act, acting as though there's this huge regime shift from the last two years. And really, I mean, a few players have gotten older, certainly. Um, they lost Edmonds, but Edmonds wasn't even that particularly that good. Frazier, you know, is a, is a good defensive play caller, but I think McDermott, you know, will be good in that role as well. McDermott's also a very good in-game coach. Like he calls the right fourth downs. He handles the clock well. They get Damien. So the one underrated thing too, is I think they're going to run fewer RPOs and RPOs are just kind of like, they're a fad. And, you know, for, I, the, I think the Bills struggled so much in like in physicality because they tried to run too many RPOs. They bring Damien, Damien Harrison at running back to go along with James Cook. I think that that's going to be a good pairing as well. And I have a hard time seeing Dawson Knox and Dalton Kincaid both being bad. So if one of those guys is good, then I think that their offense is going to be pretty solid. Yeah, I, I think the Bills' uh, biggest enemy continues to be them. Like, if you look at just stats and you're like, this is the team with the number one point differential and number one in total DVOA and like second in yards per drive and second in points per drive, the things that stand out to me is this team punted the ball fewer than anybody else in the NFL, but they were 31st in turnovers per drive. Uh, Josh Allen led the league with five red zone interceptions. He also fumbled the ball once. Um, so this is a team that at times is so good. They shoot themselves in the foot. Even the game where they beat the Kansas city chiefs last year, they didn't punt against the chiefs. They just turned the ball over and still ended up squeezing out the win against them. Uh, Taze Seth from Sumer sports, uh, tweets out a chart last year and it measures big time throw percentage versus turnover worthy throw percentage. And, you know, Mahomes and Rogers are in the top right quadrant as usual. And in the bottom right quadrant is Josh Allen. He's like, nobody makes more big throws than him, but he also plays a little bit uh, recklessly. I think if he can get a, a rid of a little of the Brett Favre to his game, like you think of the Jets game where they got down to the red zone, he throws a pick six that turned the entire game and they ended up losing that. If they can dump some of that, the Bills, like when they play their A game, nobody's better than them in the NFL. Um, when you start to think of uh, win totals, do you think the win total is a little too light or is this building in how difficult their schedule is? Yeah, I think, I mean, their schedule is tough. I, when I look at it right here, I mean, you're talking about half a point harder than the average game on a neutral field. 
I still make them 11.2 wins just because I don't necessarily like there's some priors that's, you know, on the jets and the dolphins that are, that I'm sticking to a little bit more heavily, even though there have been some changes there. Um, I, I think, I think over is the only play on Buffalo. Uh, there's just so many things that they do. Right. And I think, you know, Suma said this, it's like there, when you look at that defense, like they are one of the truly decent, you know, truly good defenses in the NFL. And so, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking to handicap this, you know, the jets and the, the dolphins and new England, all trying, you know, all in that division, like there isn't a more complete team than them. So even though I think the popular narrative is to knock them off, I, I think that they're going to be strong. Um, if I were to like one minus 169 is a bit, a bit rich, given my numbers 11.2, but I, you know, I, I would more target them in sort of the longer shot, you know, type of type of markets, like, you know, winning the AFC and, and, you know, winning the, uh, winning the Super Bowl more than I would bet the win total, because again, like th- this number is kind of more towards my number anyway. Sure. And I probably like them for division more in the, I think it's correlated if they can get to 11 wins, they'd likely win the division. It's not guaranteed, but the price difference is big enough. Uh, Zuma, are you making any bets on Buffalo before the season starts? I don't think the prices are all that great. Um, I would probably do it the same way like Eric and maybe looking towards some uh, uh, Super Bowl um, prices. I mean, they are, I think, only uh, minus two or minus one and a half point favorites in week one. Maybe if they lose to the Jets, you will get a better price after week one. Uh, that's probably how I would look to play them. But to, to me, in my opinion, they, they are a strong Super Bowl contender going to the season. All right. One of their contenders or, or closest competition in the division is the New York Jets. And if you've uh, f- if you have a Twitter and you follow any of the Jets beat writer, the story has been the same for two weeks now. The Jets O-line is struggling. Zuma, you tweeted out about a month and a half, two months ago that if anything's going to sink the Jets, it's the O-line and the inability to find five that work. Do you still feel that way? Yes, I mean, those practice reports are brutal. And I also think, I, I haven't watched the episode yet, but I think that was also a part of Hard Knocks last night. Yeah, so, so into the O-line pretty good last night. Yeah, so the issue is that Dwayne Brown is still on the POP list. Um, they expect him to be back by week one, but he's coming off an injury. He's 37 years old. There's some uncertainty there uh, in terms of what's his performance going to look like early in the season. Mikhail Becton played 27 snaps against Carolina uh, last Saturday. They are slowly easing him back, but you never know with Mikhail Becton. So the alternatives right now are Billy Turner at Max Mitchell at uh, left tackle and right tackle. Elijah Tucker got injured, uh, I think, on Monday. He's day-to-day. Laken Tomlinson is day-to-day. They are still figuring out their, the center position. They got absolutely hammered in joint practices by the Panthers last week. They got hammered today in joint practices by the Bucks. And Robert Sala said that after the Panthers game, he wanted to sort out the starting O-line formation. And I think, according to reports, we are probably still far away from that. So that's a concern. I mean, in a perfect world, you will have Dwayne Brown, Lakin Tomlinson, Conor McGovern, uh, Elijah Tucker, and... Mikhail Beckton starting in week one, in my opinion. That was that is probably the, the best starting five. And if, if those five start, I have not a lot of concerns about that unit, but it could also go down very quickly. And you are looking at Billy Turner and Max Mitchell and maybe an, an injured guard or something. Uh, Joe Tipman, who they drafted in, in the second round, early in camp, they said he's running with, with the third stringers. 
right now is looking to be much better. He, he got some first team reps today. Don't know what's going to happen there. But yeah, I mean, I think that the Jets O-line has a very, very wide range of outcomes. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know why there isn't a bigger push to make Elijah Vera tack uh, Tucker the tackle I remember uh, a couple years ago when the Colts didn't have their left tackle situated there was talks about maybe turning Quentin Nelson into a tackle and experimenting if it works and the idea is you know just being a pretty good tackle is might be a better surplus value than just being a very good guard Eric where do you fall on that do you do you want to see Vera Tucker out at tackle or do you think they need to keep him at guard and, and let him be a strong guard for them yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that this is a do-or-die year for the Jets front office is because they made moves like moving up to, what, 14 to get Elijah Vera Tucker, um, giving up the pick that the Vikings used on Christian Derrissaw, by the way, um, to go. <laughs> and so um, that, yeah, I mean, when you when you draft a guard that high, Nelson, uh, Vera Tucker, those guys can be very good players but not move the needle you know, a lot. And to me, that – that's that's harmful to an offense. So I do agree that you want to you want to move, you know, you probably want to move him over. The issue is, is Lakin Tomlinson, for example, this is an ex when you look at like PFF grades and everything, which they do a great job, but it's like teams and schemes, right? Lakin Tomlinson graded horribly in, in Detroit, graded pretty well in San Francisco, graded horribly in New York last year. You do have to be mindful of those things and say, OK, is he even like, is he a fit here? Um, because I, I agree with Suma. I think when they if they get their starting five out there, as said, it's fine. They're one player away from being a bad offensive line, though, and that that is concerning. And they should be looking like, look, if they're practicing with Tampa Bay this week, they should call Tampa Bay and see if they have an extra lineman because Tampa Bay, you know, party's over there, um, and, and they they should at least get some depth because that is a concern. And we've seen with Aaron Rodgers, like Aaron Rodgers is not necessarily a guy that's going to fight through, um, you know, a, a less than perfect roster for the betterment of the team. Sure, sure. Um, I when I started the process, the Jets were my seventh power rated team. They are now my ninth, and it's not a huge drop off. But I am now concerned about an O line. Uh, Zuma, do you think they get it all sorted before the season starts? If you had to uh, guess by week one, does the Jets O line look pretty good, or do you think the concerns carry over? I think it will be somewhere in the middle because they are telling us that Dwayne Brown will start in week one. So I mean. There's not a lot of um, stuff that why why would why would they say that if they are really concerned about that? Then it's about right tackle. I mean, if Mikhail Beckton is not really ready and he doesn't have a hundred percent trust in his uh, knee, we might see Max Mitchell, for example. So I think prob probabilistically speaking, it's probably some some middle ground. One thing I would like to add, so. The, the Jets are spending like I think a base salary of six million on Delvin Cook. Like <laughs> Dalton Risner is still a free agent. For example, you could probably spend the exact same amount of money on Dalton Risner. Uh, and if either tackle is not um, ready in week one, you could pro potentially shift Elijah Tucker to right tackle and let Dalton Risner play a right guard. That would be, in my opinion, a much better investment than spending that money on Delvin Cook. Well, uh, two uh, veteran running backs found new teams this, this week, Dalvin Cook and Zeke Elliott to the Patriots. Eric, do any of these guys move the needle, or do, it feels silly to even ask that? I mean, Zeke looked like James Harden walking out in the field today. So that was that was a little concerning. <laughs> um, look, everybody believes because Belichick does something that it's sharp, and like we've seen Belichick sign Ocho Cinco and not, him not do anything. We've seen him sign Joey Galloway. 
We've seen him sign Albert Hainsworth. So I, I don't believe Zeke's going to do anything. And I don't think the fact that Belichick signed him is any more of a tell than anything else. So I would say Zeke's probably, probably just going to be a complimentary back to Ramondre Stevenson. I think Cook, Cook's numbers were terrible last year as far as, you know, when you look at his yards per carry, it's 5, 4.7, 4.4 the last three years. When you look at yards per touch, it's gone down by a tenth to two tenths of a yard every year for the last four years. So he just simply, he can break off the big one, but he can't like carry the load. And I think in New York, that's actually okay if Brees Hall comes back and he just is a complimentary guy. Um, that being said, this this is a very clearly a move. It's like, you're, you know, you're already all in on something and you just like throw a couple extra bets in because like, what what is this extra few hundred dollars in my pocket type of thing? So that's kind of how I see this Jets move for Dalvin Cook. It's not going to move the needle, but it, it does signal, and we all knew this already, that not only are the Jets all in, but everybody's fired if they don't make the playoffs. And yeah. so to me, that's what it signifies. Yeah, uh, the Dolphins had been linked and rumored to Dalvin Cook uh, for majority of the offseason, and I was firmly against it. I wanted no parts of it. When you look at like qualifying running backs in rush yards over expectation, Dalvin Cook was second last, and he was getting uh, minus 0.75 yards uh, lower than expected per carry. You talked about uh, assuming an organization makes sharp moves like New England. Uh, San Fran has been a pretty sharp organization over the years. They do have one major blunder, it looks like, and that was trading a boatload of picks to move up and draft Trey Lance third overall, who now has not only probably lost his starting job to Brock Purdy, he also probably has lost his backup job to Sam Darnold. Um, Suma, should they just salvage what they can and move on from him right now? Yeah, I mean, the chapter is clearly close, in my opinion. Like, he's the third quarterback in, in San Fran. I mean, it started, I think, in the first year of Trey Lance when Kyle Shanahan mentioned that it's very, very hard to run two playbooks similarly. So um, when you look at Sam Darnold and Brock Purdy, they are different uh, player types than Trey Lance. And I think... All the offseason reports about Sam Darnold have been overly positive coming out of the, the Bay Area. And I think it's going to be Brock Purdy, Sam Darnold, and they are probably trying to uh, showcase Trey Lance uh, during the preseason with a major for sale sign and just hope that anyone, maybe the Falcons or whatever, is going to ship in a third one, fourth one pick or something. Yeah, when the process started and the talks were, you know, oh, they're probably going to get a second round pick or that's what it would take to move them. Kind of like Jimmy G and they would need a first round pick to move them. It feels uh, very similar. And I think the price has gone down severely. Eric, who should be interested in speculating on a guy like Trey Lance? I think it's probably the Minnesota Vikings. Like when you look at, you know, Kirk Cousins is on the final year of his deal. Um they the best they did was Nick Mullins and Jaron Hall this offseason, and that's not really that's not promising. Um, they're probably too good, the Vikings, with a win total of eight and a half to generate a, a pick in the top 10 this year. And anything you give up for Trey Lance, let's say it's a fourth round pick, is going to be way more, way less, I'm sorry, than it's what it's going to cost you to go from like 12 to two to get, you know, whether it be Drake May or Caleb Williams, depending upon who goes first. So I think you know, Quasi Adapomensa has shown this a lot. He he sent a fifth round pick for Jalen Rager. He sent, I believe, a fifth or sixth round pick for Ross Blacklock, a former second round pick of the Houston Texans. 
obviously he traded for TJ Hawkinson, a first rounder who many thought was a bust in Detroit. So he seems like the kind of buy low guy that would at least take a shot at Trey Lance. Um, and given how poorly Lance has played this preseason, it, it's kind of a perfect move because he's not good enough to be like a threat to Kirk Cousins, but he's also like got enough potential to be a legitimate, at least heir apparent candidate. Uh, you know who I think should also like falls in that bucket and they probably are bad enough to tank for one of the QBs, but I don't know that this coaching staff and GM will survive if they do. And that's the Las Vegas Raiders and um, uh, uh, McDaniel. I don't know that they're going to survive a bad season. Uh, why not bring back Jimmy G and Trey Lance and get the band back together again and have them hold the cl clipboard for Jimmy in case Jimmy's really bad. Uh, maybe you pull the shoot and give a uh, Trey Lance a six or seven game audition. Well, you know, that's you know, if Al Davis was still alive, they'd they'd trade for him because oh, that's yeah. a just win baby, throw the ball downfield type of quarterback that like he's miscast in San Francisco, right? Like we San Francisco, Kyle likes the guys that he can puppet master. He does not like the guys that can that are freelancers, for lack of a better term. And so it was it was kind of a miscalculation. But like the Raiders have always loved that kind of quarterback, the Kerry Collins and the Jay Schraders and the Jeff Hostetlers, all those guys that. It, like are kind of more downfield guys than they are underneath guys. And Lance kind of fits that mold, frankly. All right. Let's talk. About, oh, what were you saying, Sumo? That was a lot of eight no covers slender. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about rookie quarterbacks. Um, I am texting with Sharp Clark and we're talking about Houston, Baltimore week one. And I'm like, hey, I kind of have some interest in Houston. I want to wait till it gets to 10 and then i saw cj stroud's first drive i'm like i might need 10 and a half before i uh, <laughs> lock in a position because he didn't look very good uh let's talk about it um bryce young and anthony richardson have been named the starters for their teams week one cj stroud is presumably also going to be the starter zuma which one of these three do you uh have more uh the most expectations or you think is in the best situation to succeed uh, tough to answer. I mean, what we thought from Anthony Richardson in week one is was a, a lot of the uh, or a lot of confirmation bias because he already showed very decent pocket movement. He showcased his uh, rushing ability where he tanked, I think, uh, Mika Hyde or someone, and he also had that beautiful uh, corner route to I think Alec Pierce who, who dropped it. So I think Anthony Richardson, uh, from that skill set and in the Shane Steichen offense, offensive line should be better. I think he's in a very good position, but there's also like the widest range of outcomes because that's someone who started 13 games in college with a 50% completion percentage. I think he's in a very good position, but he has probably probably has the, the widest range of outcomes. And for the others, I mean, if you look at the Texans roster and when you look at their offense, there is not that great of a supporting cast surrounding CJ Stroud, who, in my opinion, needs a little bit more help because he doesn't have that high talent seeding like an Anthony Richardson. That receiving group is pretty young and thin. Nico Collins is their wide receiver one. They have, they will they will likely be without Titus Howard um, to start the season. New play corner. I mean, tough to say. Really tough to say who's going to have the the best situation. Uh, Eric, what about for you? Which one of these three do you think are in the best situation? Honestly, I think it's Indianapolis. I mean, I, when I look, I look at Carolina and I think 
they have one of the better new coaching staffs you've seen assembled in a long time with Ajiro Evero and Frank Reich and, you know, Adrian Wilson and guys like that. Like, this is a good front office. They have at the wide receiver position, you know, you know, some, you know, Chark and Thielen guys that have been uh, in the NFL before. Both guys have had a thousand yards. Hayden Hurst, a good tight end. Um, Houston, to your point, like, Stroud's never going to have a supporting cast, especially at wide receiver, better than he had at Ohio State. So it's always going to be adjustment period. And it was it was weird to me that on on Thursday night he played without his two starting tackles because like we've never seen him play with bad tackles, and it was a it was a joke. When I look at Richardson, I think of I think a the gravity that he's going to have running the football with Jonathan Taylor. Like when when he was handing the ball off, no one in Buffalo moved the other day. It was just like they were. And you saw the running backs were getting a lot of yards before contact when he was handing the ball off. You have an improving offensive line there. I think that they're, you know, Bernard Raymond, for example, is pretty is a pretty solid prospect. I think I like Quentin Nelson, Ryan Kelly. Yeah, I like I like their offense. Alec Pierce and, and Michael Pittman are two good players. Tight ends are tall. Like I, I, that offense is good. And then you have Steichen who got Justin Herbert to rookie of the year in 2020. And then in 2022, obviously got Hurts to the Super Bowl. Probably should have been MVP in that game. You kind of have Richardson as the mold of those two players. And so I, I see him having some success in year one. And given that division where I, Indian, you know, Indianapolis has a top five easy schedule, like I, I kind of like, you know, how they're going to be able to operate. Yeah. I, I from a, just if you're evaluating just quarterbacks, I like – Stroud the most of these three quarterbacks, but I actually think Carolina has the best situation. They all have similar O-lines, right, where there's pretty good pieces. It's not collectively the best unit, but it's not the worst units kind of middle of the road. I just think of like having Frank Reich and Jim Caldwell and Josh McCowan and Deuce Staley and Dom Capers. Like that's a lot of experience in the room. And I think coaching plays a, a, a large role in the development of quarterbacks. So I think Bryce Young is in the best situation. And he also does have probably the best defense of the three. Um, let's ask a betting related question um, or not even a betting related question. What do you think a ceiling looks like year one for all three of the, these teams? What's Carolina's best case scenario? What's Houston's best case scenario? And what's Indy's best case scenario Suma, I'll go to you. I think that Indy or Anthony Richardson and Indy have the highest ceiling because if Richardson is good, like the skill set can really compound. And I think that's the difference to someone like CJ Stroud. Um, Carolina Panthers, I mean, they are playing one of the easier schedules and they are, playing, they are also playing in the NFC South. So if um, Bryce Young is good, they will probably have a decent chance to, to, to make the playoffs in year one. Uh, Houston, it, it's really tough to say with the uh, Jaguars in their division. Um, Indianapolis, I mean, that ceiling is, is, is just crazy to me. Like all what Eric said, that if that guy is good and we believe in Shane Steichen and if they have a high floor with their run game and Richardson can really take like a one one step forward as a passer and, and, and the scheme fits well because also have that uh, wildcard seating in my opinion. Uh, Eric, I saw your comment that you're jealous of my Tim Hortons in this high level ad placing. Um, Eric, of the three teams, who do you think uh, has the highest ceiling or what does all their ceilings look like this year? Is it weird to say that they're all 10 and seven? That to me, I feel like if all three have a good year, it's 10 and seven. 
The issue is, is when you look at the distribution, the highest ceiling relative to expectations is is going to be Houston and Indianapolis, right? Like Carolina's got a decently high win total, seven and a half or so, which I think is, depending upon where you can shop for Indy, I think it's a little lower. But I think that they're like, I wouldn't be surprised if 10 and seven happened to all of them. I don't think any of them are Super Bowl contenders. I think when, if Houston, Houston's defense can be pretty good, has an easy schedule like Indianapolis. I don't think that they have the high end running game that they could lean on uh, that Indianapolis does. But I think all, if all three teams went 10 and seven or one, you know, in any instance, I would not be surprised because I think that they had a pretty, um, pretty interesting, um, I think they have a pretty interesting, you know, sort of path there, but all three teams, easy schedule, all three teams, you know, have some upside. All three teams, I think, have a lower ceiling than some of these great teams because of lack of wide receiver ability, as well as, um, you know, just just general you know, roster roster weaknesses. Well, um, you know, I'm not sure if you guys have heard that uh, Simon Hunter pitched a team to take Anthony Richardson as their QB one. Uh, maybe they didn't listen and we'll see if that backfires for them. And I put a lot of weight into that and how good Anthony Richardson can be. Uh, we got some like live breaking news. Uh, we don't know how serious it is yet, but uh, producer Jason says Traylon Burks just got carted off. With a leg injury, does this change anything for the Titans' outlook, uh, Suma? A little bit, yes, because um, they desperately needed DeAndre Hopkins. And now, if Traylon Burks really misses time, we're looking at a receiving group where it's, um, I think, 31-year-old DeAndre Hopkins who... Uh, really showed over, over the last couple of years that he's not that, let's say, peak athletic guy anymore and, and he, he doesn't really win with great separation. And then you're looking at Nick Westbrook-Akeen as the wide receiver too. And from, from there on, I think it's it get pretty ugly for the Titans. We're also talking about arguably the, the worst offensive line in football right now. I mean, if they miss Trail Burks, that would really uh, be very, very bad for that offense. Yeah, it's good if you have uh, Chigo Cuanco in your fantasy roster because I think you'll see an uptick. Eric, would this uh, sour you on any Titans optimism if Traylon Burks is out? Yeah, I didn't have that much to begin with. I just I, you're talking <laughs> about three coordinators in three years, no, three coordinators in four years. Um, you're talking about an offensive line that I mean, Petit Freer is already out for gambling in the first six weeks. Left tackle is is it's Andre Dillard who got beat out in, in Philadelphia years ago. Um, it's not particularly great. Skaronsky, who knows where he's going to play? Like I'm just not a huge fan of this offense in general. And you know, you know that they're going to try to give you know they're going to run Derrick Henry until the wheels come off. So you know, I think that the average drive for the Tennessee Titans this year is going to be five yards worth of runs to Derrick Henry and some back shoulder throw to, to DeAndre Hopkins that's incomplete because neither Tannehill nor Levis nor Willis can throw that ball to the to the sort of accuracy that a guy like Kyler Murray or even a guy like Deshaun Watson is able to. Well, uh, it's preseason time, and, you know, some people right now are actively betting preseason. I know uh, Suma and I don't have anything particular on preseason, Eric. I know that you like to dabble on CFL and USFL and a little bit of everything. Um, I actually want to look at week one, though. I think uh, it's time where we start looking at it because the lines between now and then will probably move. Is there a line on the board right now, Suma, that you don't think is going to be there come kickoff week one? Um, 
I think one of the more interesting lines right now is uh, Arizona at Washington, that is uh, plus six. So we are under the assumption that Colt McCoy is going to play, but there's probably, in based on, on rumors that we had over the offseason, that there might be a small chance that we see Clayton Tune in yeah. week one. So I think when you look at um, uh, Sam Howell laying six point in his uh, first career start, I think it was the first career start, or did he play against uh, in that week 17 game last year? And I don't really remember. So yeah, um, Sam, okay. So a second career start for Sam Howell, um, new OC, where we don't know if he's a significant upgrade over Scott Turner, <laughs> laying six points. Um, I mean, as soon as we get the confirmation that Colt McCoy is going to start with one, I can't really see that one getting towards six and a half, and I would and I would not expect it to close plus six come week one. Eric, what's the bet on the week one board that you don't think is going to be there um, before kickoff week one? Yeah, a couple. It's actually the same game, I think. So Los Angeles is hosting Miami in a game that you know I think actually has significant playoff leverage in week one. Um, the Chargers are minus two and a half. I actually think it'll probably close. Uh, my, my, my hunch is that it'll close higher for the chart, like minus three for the Chargers. But the one that I think, you know, totals move more in the NFL than, than spreads. And that total there at 50 without Jalen Ramsey, you know, every single day that passes by for the Chargers, somebody's, you know, somebody's bound to get injured and they're bound to get injured in the, you know, uh, in the um, you know secondary or on the defensive line, I think the total in that game is going to close higher than where it is at now, fifty. Yep, um, probably, and uh, that'd be interesting as a Dolphins fan. I uh, really want to set the tone right, and I think this is a difficult Week One matchup. The the line that I don't think will be there uh, by kickoff is Pittsburgh is plus three right now against San Francisco, and even when Brock Purdy is named the starter. I believe some Pittsburgh money will bring that number under three by the time we get to kickoff. Um, if that's all we have, it sounds like we've uh, touched on a bunch of different topics. We even handled a live round audible in the middle of everything. I want to thank uh, my guests, uh, Zuma and Eric Eager, for joining me. I want to thank the audience for tuning in. Do us a favor, hit the like button, subscribe to the channel, and leave some feedback of what you liked or didn't like today and any questions you may have in the future do yourself a favor set notifications you won't want to miss this content every week we'll be covering the live up to date and breaking news as it happens we'll be back next week the same time until next time